puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Carwood and Company Side Chatters today is not the first time we've examined the prospect of reality warping rituals carried out by the cabal behind the curtain, transmuting matter and transcending time and space, nor will it be the last. And even though we poor profane masses haven't been initiated into the secret religion and we've been told there's nothing to the not-so-subtle art of manifesting one's will, we've heard too many lies and seen too many examples of the contrary at this point to be fooled anymore. The collapsing of the Twin Pillars on 9-11, the methodically planned, named, and timing of the ritual missions of NASA, the esoterically drenched dollar bill, the extremely particular layout of Washington, D.C., and the strange overemphasis on obelisks as well as thinly veiled tributes to gods and goddesses all across our so-called modern world. They do this stuff for a reason, people, and while the purpose and players might not be 100% clear, it's easy to see that something's up. Well, today we're going to be looking at just such an example in the ritual-revealing work of today's guest, Michael Wan. Michael is the man behind the body of work and website known as Susquehanna Alchemy, which revolves mainly around the Susquehanna River, one of the oldest existing rivers in the world, which runs largely through the state of Pennsylvania and empties into the Chesapeake Bay. Folks, we know there was an emphasis on alchemy, geomancy, and magic by the early founders of America, but the impressive work that Michael has done shows that this river is ground zero for an ongoing Rosicrucian-ran druidic ritual of river goddess worship, complete with secret locations, methodically mapped reference points, ritual offerings, and several yearly traditional celebrations we take for granted, all strategically placed at the ends and intersections of the Susquehanna River to prop up the potency of this behind-the-scenes magic. In the vein of Chris Knowles and Court Lindahl, this has quickly become one of the freshest and most fascinating things to cross my clutter desk in quite some time, and I can't wait for you to hear about it. The great river goddess worship revealer and alchemy exposer himself, Michael Wan, my man. Welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you for having me, Greg. That was quite an introduction. Thank you very much. I hope I can live up to it. Oh, no doubt you can, man, because I'm not kidding when I say this is super amazing work. It's like all the pieces fit. From the name of the river and the mirroring of another river in Europe, which is something we've seen from Elite Magic before, to secret codes and specific places and festivals that just all make sense when you have the context, including even the Groundhog's Day ritual, which takes place at one of the river's mouths and corresponds to an old Gaelic festival. I really just can't be more complimentary about this work. I literally dream of having this sort of discovery. But, you know, on your website, when asked, where does this information come from? You say botanist and inventor George Washington Carver said it best when he explained his uncanny ability to identify new uses for crops. Anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. And I really like that. <laughs> but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how you made this discovery and how you decoded this ritual. All right. That's a great question. So I'm 47 years old and 
I have been interested in what I'll generally refer to as the invisible world for at least 30 years. And by that, I mean anything which could be called magic, or this is also psychology, astrology, neuro-linguistic programming, subliminals, all this stuff which is real but not really tangible. And probably about 15 years ago, after 9-11, as you know, so many of us were woken up by that event, I then turned my studies to conspiracy. I made that my job. Cheers to that. And so I came in with those two lenses. And about four years ago, my personal life, it broke down. I found myself without all of the things that were in my life, family, friends, my house, all of the things in my house, all of that stuff, it went away. I wasn't destitute, but that stuff went away. And I found myself living in this small little river town on the western side of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm not from here originally. And as I was going through my own inner process of dealing with the cards that life deals you, I was riding my bike really as therapy on this really nice trail along the river. And there was deep emotion, you know, I'm working through all this stuff and emotion is key, you know, for whatever that matters. And I'm curious by nature. I didn't know what the Susquehanna River was and I just went to Wikipedia. And it all began with seeing that there was a connection to something called the John Smith map of Virginia. John Smith being the leader of the Jamestown settlement. And I'm looking at the map online because the Susquehanna River and the Chesapeake Bay are the same body of water. The only reason we think of them as different is because they have different names. It's a spell, but they're the same thing. So when I talk about the Susquehanna River, I also include the Chesapeake Bay. And I'm looking at this map, and this map is from 1612, and it's primarily of the Chesapeake Bay. And I'm looking at the top of it, and there are latitudinal markers I noticed that the 40, it's a real small little detail in the map. It's not just backwards, it's mirrored. Zero comes first and the four points in the opposite direction. From there, I was like, all right, I've got this conspiracy lens and I've got this invisible world lens. I'm like, okay, I'm naturally drawn to things that fall outside of the norm. So I go and I search. What's up with the reversed 40 on the John Smith map? And I found zero hits on Google. Hmm. Like, how can this be? I mean, this is a major historical document. How could no one talk about it or explain it in very, very regular terms? Oh, they got it backwards or that was normal in that time hmm. period. And it was from that tiny little piece that was my doorway into what I'll generally refer to as the Susquehanna mystery. The piece about the Washington Carver quote has to do with the fact that I was already emotionally tied to this river because I was processing my emotions through that, mm. um, just riding up and down from it. Now, going back to the map, so I quickly realized who was behind the map. That's just basic history. And I realized there's some pretty big names there, the biggest name being Francis Bacon. And I pulled off my shelf the secret teachings of all ages, mainly P. Hall's work. And I've had that. I've never actually read it. I mean, the thing's a phone book, and I didn't have a need for it. 
But all of a sudden, I had context for it. I'm like, okay, here's a document. And it ties to the supposed leader of the Rosicrucian movement, the guy who's behind the final editor of the King James Bible, the guy who's behind the New World Colonization Scheme, the father of the scientific method. And mainly P. Hall's book is more or less an analysis of their techniques. And so I just followed the techniques which mainly P. Hall laid out and I applied it to this map. And then all of a sudden, everything fell into place. And I began this a couple years ago, the research. And about two years ago, I began the sharing of this information. And I was doing it in small local talks. And I knew there was something, but I didn't quite understand the scope of it. I knew I was looking at a detail, but I didn't see the big picture. And over time, more and more pieces of the puzzle came into clarity. And then eventually, this entire big picture of the river and how it's being used and all of the techniques just came into great clarity. And it makes perfect sense because I did a lot of research on Francis Bacon and a great place to find where I found information is the Francis Bacon Research Trust. It's out of the UK. And Francis Bacon's a very controversial character, depending upon how you view reality. Some people see him as an ascended master and some people see him as quite diabolical. But the Research Trust is very pro-Francis Bacon. And they talked about this one technique which he had called hide and seek, where he purposefully hid secret pieces of information across all of the different works which were associated with him, which include the works of Shakespeare. And the same thing is just as true with this river altar, that all of the clues are there. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have the eyes to see and you get just a little bit of context, it's my impression that this was put to be discovered. Mm. And the most ironic thing about the whole thing is, as I said, it began with this reversed 40. And the first thing which I did was I decoded the map based upon Manly P. Hall's techniques of describing Rosicrucian steganography or the art of hiding secret messages in public documents. I identified a location in the map and it's the cross section of the 40th parallel and the Susquehanna River. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where I was located, or I am located still to this day. <laughs> Man, that is a really great primer and introduction to this. It seems like maybe a little bit of the hand of fate was at play, for better or worse, and you being the guy to bring this out in this crazy Da Vinci Code national treasure type of adventure. It is just really fascinating. And so to dig a little bit more into the river itself, I got to admit, Susquehanna always just sounded Native American to me. But talk to us about where it really gets its name and how it ties back to Isis and actually mirrors the river running through Paris. All right. Well, that's a great question. I want to take a step back. Everything which I'm saying, you're not going to read any of these details anywhere. There's no books that tell you this. But everything which I'm referencing, all of the data points are completely verifiable. And I'm the biggest skeptic there is. And so when I look at these conclusions, I'm always internally saying, all right, well, what's the probability? And some things I say, 
are greater probability than lesser probability. And I would say that I don't know how much is conscious and how much isn't. Right. But the name itself, Susquehanna, it is an Algonquin word. And where this gets interesting is the Algonquin family of languages, it's one of the larger Native American language families, has a very strange Gaelic connection in phonetics and meanings. And so the river itself, prior to it being named Susquehanna by John Smith and that English fashion, it was called all sorts of different things by different people. Within the Northeast, there are many rivers that are Algonquin in origin, which have very, very similar phonetic matches in Gaelic, the ancient tongue of the Celts. And they also have the same meanings. The word Susquehanna has a strong, let me take one step back, within the Celtic tradition, I'll use Gaelic and Celtic kind of interchangeably, was the ancient practice of river goddess worship. This was actually a practice which is spread throughout the ancient world, maybe a little bit different in different cultures. Probably the best known may be the holy rivers in India, and there's a strong correlation between the Celtic civilization and then also the Vedic period in India. But within the Celtic tradition, there is river goddess worship. And each river is considered synonymous with a ruling goddess. Maybe not every river, but the important ones. And there was a very significant river and river goddess, which was in Gaul, G-A-U-L. And Gaul is more or less what we now call France. And there was a tribe of people called the Sequani. And they were called that because they worshipped the goddess Sequana. So that's the first clue. And you're like, okay, well, there's a phonetic similarity. And when you begin to realize that this is a technique, a modus operandi within masonry, within Rosicrucianism, within secret societies of wordplay. Mm -hmm. And so you see this very frequently. So that's just one piece of the puzzle. But now the rest of it is, if you were to go in and then look at the map itself, there's a very large drawing of a Susquehanna warrior, and it's labeled Susquehanna warrior, and it's a strange statement beneath the feet. It says, the Susquehanna are a giant-like people and thus attired. That statement in itself has a lot of depth to it. Oh, yeah. Which we could go into giants, we could go into the word attired, which keys back to tire and Freemasonry, and these are all the people who are behind Freemasonry. But there's also a goddess element. Hanging on the neck of the warrior is a wolf head. And we know it's a wolf head because there was a corresponding book that came with the map. And it says that the Susquehanna's got a wolf head hanging around his neck. So you go and you do a little bit of research and you see the wolf head is an important symbol within Freemasonry, but it has a much, much older connotation. And its original connotation goes back to the ancient cult of Isis worship. So now let's go back to the Sequani and the Sequana. So Sequana was a very significant river goddess to the Celtic people, particularly those that lived in Gaul. And 
there was a large shrine that was built at the source of the river. Now, the river is also the same river as the Seine. And it gets confusing because the names are changing. And the name was changed from Sequana to the Seine by Julius Caesar. It was Latinized. Now, the Seine River is the river that bisects Paris. And Paris is a very interesting city in itself because that area was originally inhabited by another Celtic tribe, which were called the Parasai. And they were called that because they worshipped Isis. And this is a little bit controversial because there are some interpretations that, that don't necessarily buy this, but I've come to the conclusion that it makes sense when you begin to put all the pieces together. But Paris was a location and a city associated with Isis. In fact, the Notre Dame Cathedral, which is built upon an island right in the center of Paris, is built upon an ancient Isis shrine. So now what we're seeing is a correlation between the same body of water, which one group of people are calling the Sequana, and another group of people are called Isis. So now we want to go one step deeper. There's a general statement or axiom which says that there is only one goddess, but she goes by 10,000 names. So then once we begin to recognize that, and this spreads across cultures, we can see that whether it's a deity or whether it is a concept or whether it's an idea, it's all referring to the same thing. So now we're looking back at the Susquehanna River. And we see the same sort of mixture of goddess symbology, of Sequana, of Isis. And I probably have about 10 other examples. I covered that in a video called The Goddess Susquehanna. But the river itself, the Susquehanna River, is loaded both in what I would suggest would be very consciously and purposefully and other ways which are just, you can't explain it through rational thought, but goddess symbology is all over it. <laughs> Indeed, man. And it is crazy how deep it goes. And so when talking about this overall agenda, I've heard you say that it all goes back to John Dee. And we hear a lot about Dee, but it's rarely emphasized that he was at all involved in America's founding. Jamestown was established in 1607, the year before he died. And as you note in one of your videos, he was tasked with providing some of the legal infrastructure for the colonies. And you say Jamestown really is the birthplace of the British Empire and the U.S., and that this really could be considered the origin point of today's globalism. And yeah, that is pretty true. And it's not really a stretch to put D in that mix a little bit. But talk to us about D as the origin point for the Susquehanna story, and I guess the genesis point for the ritual. The way I see it, is there are two main characters. There's John Dee, and he was primarily, this is late 1500s, and as you said, he died in the early 1600s. And then there's Francis Bacon. And there is little correlation between the two historically, but there's lots and lots of inference that they are strongly connected. So when you gather all of the data which is out there, and then you put it through this lens, what it appears to be is that D is much more of the strategist and the visionary 
and exists maybe even more so on this magical realm because it all begins first on the, whether you want to call it thought or in this invisible plane, and then it shows itself and manifests on the material plane. And that's what Francis Bacon seems to do. You also have to put in correlation that Dee was more or less, he was the advisor to Queen Elizabeth and Bacon, he rose to prominence under King James, who was the following monarch. And under Queen Elizabeth, the idea of magic was much more in vogue. And when King James stepped in, all of the magic stuff was kind of swept off to the side. If you read the stuff from the Research Trust and Francis Bacon, they say it all went away from the public, but it never disappeared. So John Dee, the key points that we see from him from a historical perspective is he came up with the legal justification for Britain to colonize the New World. He was also the first person who coined the phrase the British Empire. Mm. It was under Francis Bacon that then the British Empire, and this is like 25 years later, let's say, actually came into material reality. So I'll take a step back about the British Empire. The British Empire, since recorded history, so we're going to use Sumer being our starting point with that, it's the biggest empire that has ever been on our planet. Now, I'm not applauding empire building or imperialism, but what I will say is all other empires had the same goal. They wanted to control it all. And the British Empire, they're the best at what they were trying to do. So that in itself, to me, is rather significant. And at the time, Britain was a tiny little country. It was a 100 years behind the age of discovery, which was being practiced by the Spaniards and the Portuguese. And they leapfrog these guys who are already in the new world to become the biggest and greatest empire. Now, I believe there's a correlation between that and what they did. Now let's put into the mix that D and his obsidian mirror and the information he acquired with Edward Kelly. And my sense is there's a whole bunch of it, which probably hasn't been exposed. I mean, that's how I would do it if I were in that position. I mean, if I were that person Mm -hmm. understanding their modus operandi, it makes logical sense. And so Dee was also the first person to apply geometry to the art of navigation. So like when you see on like the History Channel and they show pirates over a desk looking at a map with a compass and a square, that's what we're talking about, this type of geometry. And somehow Dee was a mathematician, and he was very, very interested in the new world, and he was helping the navigators identify certain places. So underneath Dee's time frame, there was an original colony which the British established in the new world, and that's known as the Roanoke Colony. And that was off the shore of North Carolina. But it even says in the very beginning that what they were really interested in was the Chesapeake Bay. The Roanoke colony disappeared. They dropped people off. They came back a year or so later and everyone was gone. And so it's got all of this mystery. My sense is it's a sacrifice, particularly when you understand the modus operandi. I mean, this is all ball worship, or at least in the same vein of that sort of dark religion. So that happened underneath the D umbrella. 
-hmm. Francis Bacon then really comes into play in the early 1600s. And when King James comes to the throne, he's put on as his first the attorney general and then eventually the Lord Chancellor, which is his right hand man. And he was put in charge of the Virginia Company of London, or at least he sat on their executive council. And Francis Bacon was the one who wrote their charter and all of this sort of stuff. And what they did, the very, very first permanent colony, so we could say the Roanoke colony was the first colony, but it failed or it did not last. The first settlement that was permanent was Jamestown. And so Jamestown is recognized both historically and then also from the monarchy as the first step of the British Empire, because it was from Jamestown that then the rest of the colonies came into existence as they spread across the globe at their peak, probably in the 1920s. A quarter of the peoples on earth and a quarter of the land on earth was underneath the British flag. But it all began at Jamestown. Mm -hmm. And then also Jamestown is the beginning of the colony structure, which would become the United States. So that's why we say that the British Empire and the United States both were birthed at the same place in a location which was identified by John D., which was secured by at least the operational hands of Francis Bacon. And this is where they landed. And the first is always very, very significant. The more I have gone into this research the more I have begun to question, I, I don't mean this in a philosophical way, I mean this in a very, very literal way, is what are the workings of this reality? Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, river worship was very, very significant in the ancient world. And I don't think of them as a bunch of dummies. And I don't think they would have done something like this unless they had a result. No, My sense is... There is something very real about this river, which is quite possibly the oldest river on the planet, and its ability to influence the rest of the globe. And by planting the first colony at this incredibly significant location, which is where the river meets the ocean, all river goddess worship or river worship is very, very significant to the locations where the shrines are made, somehow influenced the British vision to being able to then go and expand successfully across the globe. Now, bringing this back to what you were asking about globalism, because this is history just to understand this time. Mm -hmm. Globalism, and I use globalism as a general term, and what I mean by that is Global culture, global language, global currency, global laws, global government, all this stuff about the collective. The primary instruments, no matter how you cut it in the most material way, came from the United States and Britain. Whether you want to call that the Council of Foreign Relations, whether you want to call that the British invasion and the Beatles and the pop culture industry or Hollywood, or you want to talk about the financial industry of New York City and the city of London. There's such an influence from these two entities and companies that are associated or headquartered within these entities, and this is where they all began. 
the entire river is being used in river goddess worship. And that's why the goddess symbology is so significant. They're telling you, this is who we're praying to. This is who we're doing this for. This is who we are giving our requests to. And then they offer sacrifice. And so if you go and you look at the definition of an altar, and an altar literally means a place of sacrifice. And the firsts are always the most important, the highest level of sacrifice. That's why I say this with quotation marks, the most valuable sacrifice is the firstborn. And then that became the first fruits. They started offering the first fruits of the harvest. But the first is really significant. And what we can see historically is that at every major transitional point upon this river is a major world first, which corresponds to globalism, the information age, and modern electrical distribution. And now we're going to go one step deeper. These three things also correspond with the general archetypes of the age of Aquarius. And so the completion of this altar aligns with the so-called the dawning of the age of Aquarius, and it also lines up the entire 400-year process to build this up, overlaps identically with the final phase of the Mayan calendar, which is known as the 13th Bakhtun. So now we see the timing, the location, the symbology, it all lines up, it all goes to one individual or group of individuals at the same place at the same time who seem to be on the same page with what they call building the next golden age. Mm -hmm. Again, golden age with quotations around it. It's my sense, and this all lines indirectly with what modern futurists call the singularity. That's what this is all going towards. Mm -hmm. Yes, man. It's like a magical engine for manifesting their will. It's like they harnessed some rich and dense energy at that location that was probably there or baked in to the natural world, but they took it, harnessed it to manifest their will, which is the transhumanist agenda, which is globalism. And I just think it's crazy how it does tie into the concept of the technological singularity and this transhumanism topic, which is so huge right now. Just the idea of computer technology being derived from occult workings as opposed to the other conspiracy idea, which is that it was a crash saucer in the desert. This is something that a lot of guests recently have been talking about and working through that it seems like potentially the whole alien motif is a cover for the occult stuff that they're really doing. And I mean, the case is being made clearer and clearer to me all the time. But to talk about the kind of wordplay, which is always part of magic and these long timelines, which is also part of it. Let's get into those technological aspects, because the first power plant was built where the Y connects. And then, of course, the first computer also was built near the river in 1945. We already talked about Jamestown, the globalism aspect. But that first computer, let's talk about that a bit. All right. I love where you're going with this. Okay. <laughs> So, as I said, the key transitional points, the key points on the river, and these are obvious. This is like, you know, no interpretations, like where the river meets the ocean. That's a pretty obvious transitional point. 
The Chesapeake Bay is technically what's called an estuary. And an estuary is where fresh water and salt water mix. And an estuary is an incredibly biodiverse environment. And the Chesapeake Bay is the largest in North America and one of the largest in the world. If you go and you look at the entire river from a whole, it looks like a Y. And then at the very beginning of where the Chesapeake Bay is, if you look at it and you can use a little bit of imagination, it looks very much like female reproductive system. Mm -hmm. I see that. And to me, because this is all as above, so below magic, it's about manifestation, which is why this location, I believe, had been selected. I don't know if that was the exact logic, but truth with a capital T makes sense in every context. So it makes sense in this context as well. So the next transitional point is where the Susquehanna River transitions into the bay. It's a major geological, obvious place. So now let's go to quote-unquote material history. The first computer, and I'll define computer. By computer, I mean electronic, general, and programmable. Arguably, you could say Enigma what was used by the British to crack the Nazi code, that was the first one. But the Americans made something shortly afterwards. And what separated theirs from Enigma, Enigma only did one thing versus this computer, which was able to do many different things. And it's this computer, and I'll give you the name in a moment, I'm purposefully building up to it, mm -hmm. is identified as the birth of the information age by the computer historians of the world or whatever that organization is called. And so this computer, it was, again, there's the real world and then there's the higher world, which I suggest sets almost like a lattice framework for reality to form around. It began in the University of Pennsylvania, which is Benjamin Franklin's university. He founded it. Ben Franklin was a major player in the magical aspect as well. And they built this computer for the U.S. Army. And it was to be delivered, and it was delivered, to Aberdeen Proving Grounds, which is a U.S. Army base, which is located exactly where the river and the Chesapeake Bay meet. Now, this is the first computer, and this computer has a name, and its name is an acronym. I don't have it in front of me. It's the Electronic Numerical Arithmetic Counting Machine or something like that. But it is pronounced ENIAC. Boom. Exactly. Boom. You know, particularly now that like when you first hear like Sequana and Susquehanna, you're like, oh, OK, maybe. And then you're like Enoch and Enochian or Enoch. And then you're like, OK, well, maybe there is something. Particularly where we go into the connection with Ben Franklin and University of Pennsylvania. But I want to continue down this computer time frame. So let's say that the age of information began in 1945. That's when Enoch was first created. And now we're going to go and look at the singularity. So the singularity, if you go and you spend any time and actually do some research, you're going to get a thousand different definitions from a thousand different futurists of what the singularity means. And no two are exactly the same. They're generally the same, but they're not the same. And I'm going to suggest because it's describing a threshold. It's describing when we cross into whatever we're going towards. And it is beyond our current imagination to know what this world is going to be, but we can make some assessments on the clues that are given to us. But the primary 
date, and there are a variety of dates of when this said singularity is going to happen. The primary date is 2045, and this is the date given to us by Ray Kurzweil, who I'll call the high priest. <laughs> he wrote that in his bestseller book, The Singularity is Near. So now we have this 100-year transition, and this 100-year transition actually overlaps via the phi ratio perfectly with the Susquehanna River altar, which began with Enioch at this key place. Every 25 years, we've seen a major jump in computer technology. After 25 years was when the personal computer happened. 25 years after that was the age of the internet. The next 25 years is going to be 2020. I have my thoughts on what that's going to be. And then it concludes with the singularity. So right now, there's all of this fascinating stuff going on with quantum computers. And there's great work. I mean, I love what Anthony Patch talks about. It. <laughs> and he talks about all of this deep occult symbology behind it. Mm -hmm. So we now have this context of this Enoch, Enochian magic, John D. connection. So the very, very first private quantum computer manufacturing company is called what? D-Wave. Like, hey, I'm John D. I'm giving you a wave. <laughs> I'm saying hello. You forgot about me. And who is the founder? Gordy Rose. Now, Gordy Rose, I'm certain you've seen the presentation he gives. He's like, you know, this computer is basically an altar in front of these gods. Yes. Same idea of John D. So now we have a second day, and then we're going to add this. ENIAC was announced to the public on February 15th, 1946. It was in operation in 1945, but it was announced to the public on this date, February 15th. Now, if you go and you look at the history of D-Wave, they gave their first demonstration of their prototype, which was called the Orion, on February 13th. I think it was 2007, which was the completion date of the river altar. The reason why this is significant, because all of this stuff from the river altar and all this stuff, if you're in this world, you begin to realize everything happens on these ancient holidays. Well, this February 13th and 15th date corresponds with the ancient practice of Lupercalia, which is an ancient fertility ritual. The reason why you'd want to go and do something on a fertility ritual is because fertility rituals are meant to increase the likelihood of propagation, whether that's a crop or whether that's an empire or whether that's a movement. So we're seeing these consistencies. Now, here's the thing where, and let me tie this all together, because when you see it, you're just like, of course. So when you go back to the history of the building of ENIOC, so you got all these computer scientists working in Philadelphia, you know, the place of University of Pennsylvania, where the Philadelphia experiment took place is the same period of time. And at the same time, you have the Manhattan Project going on out where you mentioned Roswell. There's our link. And there was a rock star of a mathematician. He was primarily working, I believe, in Los Alamos. He was helping figuring out how to split the atom. And he's taking a train between New York and Washington, D.C., and he runs into a couple of his buddies who are working on the ENIOC project. And they're like, ah, we're really struggling with this problem. I mean, what do you think about it? And then this computer scientist, he's like, oh, maybe I can help you out because he's thinking if you guys can get this computer working, well, I can use it to crunch my numbers. 
And so this guy goes and he helps them and he becomes a consultant. And he's kind of like the missing link to actually building this first computer called ENIAC. This gentleman is also the first person to ever use the term singularity in a technological context. So we have a connection between the endpoints of what I call the 100-year transition from first computer to singularity. And it's through this one individual. And this one individual's name, John von Neumann, or John the New Man. Hmm. This is all about creating the new man, the transgender, transhumanistic, whatever this next species is. I mean, I'll just leave it at that for now, but that's how tight this connects. Yes. Wow, man. It is amazing. And I largely just want to stay out of your way because you're putting it all in really methodical sections, chunks, just like I expected. And I guess... To kind of say something for the skeptics here, obviously at this point we're tying in some of the biggest concepts and names in the conspiracy community and pegging it all to this river and this altar and this one ritual. And of course we have the lengthy timeline. I'm sure skeptical people might be thinking, well, even if this was the intention, the elite have probably forgotten about it or the reason for these yearly festivals has been lost. I could understand that thought. But to make the point that this is all very much still on the radar... Let me ask you about the 400-year anniversary of the founding of Jamestown in 2007, and who showed up to pay tribute? All right. For me, this was one of the first pieces that tied it in together, and it's so friggin' perfect that it enabled me to feel a little bit more comfortable going out in some further conclusions. And we're not even scratching the surface on how deep this goes. I and mean, we're not talking about baseball. We're not talking about Mormonism. I mean, there's so many things. But we're going to go the 400 year because that's such a – this is where at least it demonstrates this is incredibly, incredibly still relevant. Right. There's still a question which says like, well, maybe none of it works. Maybe they did a ritual and there's nothing behind it. Now, I seem to believe that – you wouldn't be doing something and putting this energy unless there was a payout. But that's just my assumption. I can't say that for certain. So, okay, you got Jamestown, which was established May 14th, 1607. And inside the John Smith map of Virginia, which came out in 1612, it's my assumption that John Smith didn't do it, that it was Francis Bacon who returned to England. It came out. This is the same time Francis Bacon's doing the final touches on the King James Bible. There's a long precedent of passing off secret information to other people. I mean, Shakespeare is a perfect example of that. And I believe this map was one of the same things. John Smith was a lot of things, but he certainly was in a, the academic, which he's given credited for. So within this map is an encoded location, which encoding information in public documents is part and parcel for this group. And what would you put in a map, but you'd put a location. And what that location is, is the 40th parallel at the Susquehanna River. And that can be seen very, very specifically, but it also can be seen general as well. So I saw that and I didn't know much about latitudes. And that's what a parallel is. A parallel is a latitude. They're interchangeable. And I quickly found out that where I am is exactly on the 40th parallel. 
40 degrees, zero minutes, and zero seconds. Between whole numbers, like the 40th and 41st, or the 39th and 40th, there's about 70 miles in between. So I've begun to look at that. I'm like, okay, well, let's go look and see this area and see what I can find. And I'm looking on Google Maps, and about half a mile from the river's bank on the west side is a park. And when you see it from a satellite imagery, and this is just a couple miles from my house. I've been there many times. It's really just an overlook. It's beautiful. But I never had any idea what it was until I saw it on a satellite and its shape. You go up this big hill and there are a bunch of boulders or granite benches in a circle. And when you can see it from above, it's in the shape of a crescent moon and a sun the ancient symbol of alchemy. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is you're like, okay, so let me go in and do a little bit of research. Like this is a public park. It didn't just happen. You know, I don't think the local municipal government of York County is part of this massive 400 year plan. And there's a very easy to find story for how this park came into existence, which deals with eminent domain and all this sort of stuff. But Regardless of all of those stories of how the park came into being, for whatever reason, that park opened up for public use on May 12th, 2007, almost to the exact day of the 400th anniversary of the establishment of Jamestown. So now we're going to go a step deeper. I'll let that sink in for a second. So this opened up this location, the exact location. This is 40 degrees, zero minutes and six seconds, like 600 feet from this imaginary line. And this park with alchemical symbols opens up on the 400th anniversary. On the exact day that this is happening in Jamestown is something which is known as America's Anniversary Weekend. And it is this huge celebration recognizing Jamestown's 400th anniversary. And the Bushes were there and a whole bunch of celebrities and other government entities are there. But the real important guest, the one who really mattered, was Queen Elizabeth II. Yes. Remember, it was under Queen Elizabeth I that this idea of the British Empire began. And so on the 400th anniversary of Jamestown, Queen Elizabeth came to it. And the same day this high point opens up on the location in the map. So you got to realize that anytime a dignitary travels, I used to live in DC. I mean, it takes a lot of logistics. It just doesn't happen. So this took a lot of planning. And Queen Elizabeth doesn't come to all of the anniversaries of all the colonies. She's going to go to the first one. Okay. If you have children, you know, you don't remember all of your baby steps. You remember the first step. The first <laughs> is what's significant. So this is why it was so important. And she came there and it was this big celebration. So in order to honor her, and this was the first time I believe she stepped foot on American soil or at least in a public capacity in like 25 or 30 years. And so it's kind of a big deal. And she had a whole tour. I think she was there for a month. About a week before she arrives, 
And remember, Jamestown is in Virginia. That's the Virgin Queen. The Virgin Queen is Queen Elizabeth. And there's a lot of thoughts that she wasn't a virgin. She was just named that because she was taking in the role of Virgo, the virgin. This is put forth by the Francis Bacon Research Trust. She had a child and it was Francis Bacon, but that's another rabbit hole. But as she arrives to honor her in Virginia, a couple weeks before she arrives is the Virginia Tech Massacre, where 33 people were killed. Now, 33, not only is it a significant number to Freemasonry, and we can go back and talk about the vertebrates and master numbers and all sorts of stuff like that, it was also the calling card of Francis Bacon. 33 was his secret number. And so now we have Queen Elizabeth II arriving on the 400th anniversary, and 400 from a Kabbalistic perspective means completion. In Gematria, the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Tav, has a meaning of 400. So whether that's 400 breaths, 400 days, 400 years, 400 means end of a cycle and also the beginning of the next. So the end of this 400-year cycle, which aligns perfectly to the 13th Baktun of the Mayan calendar, we have this huge celebration recognized by the Virginia Tech massacre at the same day this alchemical park opens up. And here's the kicker. High Point, and that's the name of the park, the reason why the land was acquired via eminent domain is because it was built or the land is an Indian burial ground. Mm -hmm. They were going to build very high-end homes on this property, and then they discovered bones. And it's a known location of, ironically, the Susquehannocks. And as soon as those bones were discovered, they had to be like, oh, we can't build upon it. That's federal law. So we have this park, which is on top of an Indian burial ground in this exact location on the 400th year completion date of the beginning of the British Empire. Man, it is amazing. We're talking about one family, really, one team, Rosicrucians and this one network of occultists. And we're talking about, I mean, just massive influence. I mean, how can you not say that there's a few people at the apex of the pyramid when you're looking at this influence and just what America has become? You talk about the fertility God and propagating and multiplying. I mean, what has technology and globalism, if we're going to consider those the two pillars of this ritual, yeah. those things have multiplied. I mean, we all have a smartphone in our pockets. We're both staring at computer screens right now. Like it is nuts. These are the two biggest things in our lives. One family and their occult liaisons have ushered this in and it takes place, or I mean, a key point of it its focal point happens to be near a river that you just happen to have moved next to. Like, it is crazy. So uh, we are kind of starting to wrap this up. And I guess we should tell people about your book, The Rites of the 40th Parallel, Personal Transformation Along the Ancient Susquehanna River, because you say it's a guidebook of meditations that describes a modern and meaningful way of interacting with the sacred location in the John Smith map. To further that point about the elite not having the monopoly on magic, how can an individual use or at least feel this energy? 
All right, Greg, thank you for allowing me to talk about the book. So myself included, but I've been talking about this and giving presentations for at least three years. And there are some people who've been more involved with this than the other. And one of the things which I'm going to say, which I've seen is everyone's life has changed immensely, whether this cause and effect, I don't know. But if I were a betting man, I'm going to say it is. And it's because there's a certain quality. That's why I call it alchemy, Susquehanna alchemy. It's a double entendre. And it refers to both the alchemists that built the altar, but it also refers to this idea of alchemy, of changing something of lesser value to greater value, from lead to gold. And so it was from that in mind. And ultimately, I am an optimist. And ultimately, I want to believe Francis Bacon It was whether or not we want to say a good guy or as much as he was putting out this information for us for this time. Mm. That's what the hide and seek is all about. And so a way which a person can interact with it, like I can go and tell you this story and you'd be like, oh, wow, that's cool. And maybe I'd like to go and experience that. But like, what do I do? Years ago, I took a trip to Sedona and I heard all about the vortexes. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me go check it out. Let me see what this is all about. And I remember being very let down because there's no model to go by. I'm only here for a week. What do I do? You could show me some places. So with that in mind, because I live right here, I've spent the last four years right at the Susquehanna River at the 40th parallel, I've identified all the places that I've been going to, and they're all public parks, and they're beautiful, and they're rich with symbolism. If there's one thing which I think I do well is pattern recognition and symbolic interpretation. And I've created a book which identifies the locations and expresses their symbolic meanings by looking at the physical attributes around it and then giving a loose framework on how one can use it. And so that's what the book is about. It's 26 pages. It's really intended for people to come and have real experiences in person. But we're also talking about magic. And first and foremost, I'm an artist. And I created it in such a way that if this does speak to you and if this does make sense, there's all sorts of maps, kind of like what you would see at Disney World, these kind of cartoon-like maps, but they are energetic resonances. And through active imagination, if one wants to step into any of the four locations, one is for destruction, where you let go of something to be destroyed. The other is for creation, where you open yourself up for something new to come. The next one is balance, and that's where you go and you find your stability. And then the final one is integration. That's a model which I created, and that's what the book is about. You could get that on my website or at any of the talks which I do. Mm. I love it, man. Just the whole idea. I agree. I'm ultimately an optimist as well, even though we're looking at some dark stuff, then it's hard to be an optimist sometimes. But that book, I mean, I wish I was in the area because I really want to feel energies and magic. And I too have checked out some places and practices and been a little disappointed. Maybe I'm energetically dense. That's the term I use all the time. But I guess I always am brought back to, well, maybe I just need a place of higher potency. And this place now, of course, seems so potent. And developing this river magic walk meditation stuff is probably the best thing to do after discovering these dark purposes it seems to be used for. So just really, really great. Kudos to you. And I guess also 
we should mention your website because, you know, you're putting this information out almost like a series of classes, a little bit different than the norm for guests that I have. I think it's a wise way to do it. Like you say, you aren't really begging for donations. You're charging for high level research. And that's, I think, you know, right in line with my attitude of this thing. I don't want to beg people for change every episode for 20 minutes when I could just make a high level product and, you know, have a subscription model that keeps it alive without dealing with arbitrary advertisers. Why ask people to buy new underwear to support some podcast? Anyway, yeah, just tell the people about uh, the website as well, because I know there's going to be people who want to follow up. I really think this is going to be really exciting for the audience. So let them know. Well, thank you for that setup. And you're 100% right. My personal belief is that of the entrepreneur or the capitalist. And that's very different than the corporatist. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean by that is the person who goes and adds value to something and there should be an exchange and people should be compensated for their work. And so if you wish to support this work or if you're interested in learning more, it's all available on my website. I don't put anything on YouTube. I'm happy to come on these shows. In fact, they're really important for me to come on these shows. I just started doing this and. The website, which is SusquehannaAlchemy.com, is a subscription base. The price is low. It's $4.50 a month. I'm constantly putting up very high-quality presentations. It's a mixture of informal talks, but there's lots of visuals with that. And then there is formal presentations. Everything I say is visually documented. It is aesthetically pleasing. I'll warn you, it is very, very dense. You'll probably need to see a 20-minute video in three sittings. But the information is out there. I'm always adding new stuff. There are forms which can be downloaded, the maps. So that's really where I would encourage any of the listeners, if they want to learn more or want to support this, to go there, think about supporting for $4.50 a month. There's a three-day trial period. You could go and check it out, watch videos, and then cancel. I'm okay with that. And share the work. You could also friend Facebook on Susquehanna Alchemy and share some of the documentation which I put out there. That would be greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I can totally vouch that the videos are high quality. When I started this show, it was an issue I had with the conspiracy community is just the lack of quality. Maybe there's a lot of good information. But, you know, not very many good microphones. So we've come a long way. And I think you do a really great job because the delivery method is as important as the information or it won't get to people. And I really think you're going to have no shortage of podcast invitations after this. That's my magic. So (laughs) I'm happy to contribute in a small way to maybe helping this get out there. But really great talking to you. And I'll be following the work. Maybe after a few more videos come out, we can do this in the future. But until then, take care of yourself, man, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Greg. This was a lot of fun. And likewise, you do an excellent job. I've been a fan for a long time, and I've learned so much from so many of your guests. So it flows in all directions. I appreciate that as well. All right, man. Take care. All right, bro. Have a great weekend. Holy beard of Kratos, Batman. How about that, Michael Wan? A new name in my Rolodex and a guy I am very much in line with, my kind of guest. I think this is a great case study and it seems pretty sound with everything we've heard about how magic might work. I don't think it's sensationalist as these sorts of claims can be. Some people might feel like 
it's a leap to scale it all the way up to the heights that it has taken. And I'm sure the Susquehanna River magic is just one aspect of many, many micro rituals all aimed sort of at the same direction. But there's a lot of details here, and this seems like a major component. It does seem like what might be one of Mother Nature's main vaginas is heavily ritualized. And I haven't heard any researchers bring this up, and it's just really impressive if you ask me. Tracy Twyman was here not long ago saying her latest work is going to go down the path of saying John D. is the goddamn demiurge himself. Well, this is not far off. And I bet it's pretty compatible with whatever the details of those threads she's pulling on are. But there's just so much on Michael's website already. I know he mentioned Manly P. Hall's take on Sir Francis Bacon, but I don't know that we actually read this quote, which I really liked a lot. When Manly P. Hall is talking about Sir Francis Bacon, he says, Sir Francis Bacon knew the true secrets of Masonic origin, and there is reason to suspect that he concealed this knowledge in cipher and cryptogram. Bacon is not to be regarded as a man, but rather as the focal point between an invisible institution and a world which was never able to distinguish between the messenger and the message. I mean, damn. That's good stuff. And it's pretty telling, although it comes from a man who is also such a focal point and window into an invisible institution. But listen to these things we see Bacon credited with. I mean, it's damn near too much. Along with D, a major contributor to developing the scientific method as we know it today, apparently Bacon helped develop English, edited the King James Bible, helped develop the colonization plan for North America, authored the Shakespeare plays. A lot of these are things we think of as coded, and English, of course, is thought to be pretty esoterically constructed in and of itself. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff, and it had me really looking at old maps of San Diego and looking for anything half as artistic as the John Smith map. I didn't find a ton. (laughs) But I'm sure this is going to light a fire under the THC audience. I'm sure it will inspire people to look into their own towns and cities for anything esoteric or connected to these groups. I'm sure it's everywhere. And if you did like this a lot, do thank Michael for his time and effort. This is thankless work, largely. But it is so important, right? Nobody's doing it. And it's really important, especially if it can be scaled all the way up to the approaching singularity and the technological takeover. I like the ENIAC to D-Wave sort of wordplay, and it's not a huge stretch because, as mentioned, Gordy Rose, there it is, Rose, Rosicrucian, he is the one who is bringing up altars and shit in reference to what he's doing with AI. Nobody else did that. So, creepy times, people, and all roads seem to lead to that weird transhumanist technocratic apocalypse. And eventually, we really can't just keep watching and saying, yep, there's another step towards it. There's another step and another. And I'm not trying to be all Alex Jones, Pitchfork, and Tiki Torch here, but the water is getting hotter and eventually us gay frogs are going to have to jump out. Just saying, maybe we could be lazy a little while longer, but (laughs) not forever, right? For the plus people, I really also enjoyed that synchronicity of the term Tolekiel coming up in the second hour. Just a funny little thing that happened. 
And of course, the last Higher Side episode for Plus People was another Q&A with me, Greg Carlwood. Another hour of questions about all sorts of random things. Sign up for Plus if you haven't. Even this show is one hell of a reason to. If you just think the first hour was enough, it wasn't. In the second hour, we talked about the significance of the Baseball Hall of Fame on the river, the Groundhog's Day ritual, more on the significance of High Point. You gotta look at that. Look at a picture of High Point. It's interesting. We talked about the Susquehanna River petroglyphs. Maybe this place has been active for a long time because there is some relevant Native American history that we also went over. So, really interesting. I got a lot of respect for Michael's work. I like that he has a guidebook to experiencing the river's energy for yourself. I like how he knows his material. Tons of details. His subscription is very much worth it, but at least let him know you like this. I would love to have him back because I think his videos are really just in their infancy. Another thing we talked about, I believe, in the Plus show was just those reptilian threads that kind of weave throughout America's founding and Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, and that there was a place called the Green Dragon Tavern that was a big meetup place for the planners and cabals behind the curtain in early America. And funny enough, I was tasked with trying to find a Mother's Day brunch for tomorrow, and it's short notice, and we're in Southern California, so the first few places I called were booked, and then I found a place called the Green Dragon Tavern and Museum, and I thought, this is interesting, let's see what they got going on, and it looks like it's going to be a really solid brunch all around, but I was like, is this connected, and sure enough, it is. Their website says that it's for people who can't experience the real Green Dragon Tavern on the East Coast, they have a pretty big museum that's directly related to that location. So, synchronicity for me, for sure. And maybe some interesting details will emerge when I get to go to this museum, given that this stuff is so fresh in my mind. That is just a personal tangent, and when I start going on personal tangents, that probably means that this is it for me. Another show in the can. Thanks for listening, people. Screw YouTube, and I'll see you next week. Your move, occult conductors of the River Ritual, Susquehanna Sorcerers, and Transhumanistic Singularity Sympathizers. Your fucking move. Oh no. You see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. The nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the
cartoons It's so typical of me to talk about this stuff I'm sorry, that's good And well Did you ever hear the argument That nothing really happens It's no secret And that the best is plus It's doubling your time